All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of the forum, today called The Lost Age of Mankind. Now, we were delving into a few particular cases, and uh, I want us to address a few more case-based finds before we, we go on to the more speculative area. Because there are a, f a few fun questions I've always wanted to address to someone like you. In fact... I've been following your work for a very long time. It's many years since I bought your book. And always when I hear you interviewed, I, I hope they will ask you these questions, like the one about what's the oldest find. Uh, here's another one. What extreme antique period has the most frequent finds? And then I'm, of course, referring to anomalous finds. Well, one thing that influences that is that over time geological evidence gets destroyed yeah, yeah so that in the most extreme antiquity there are the fewer remaining artifacts and bones mm -hmm. and as you come closer and closer to the present the amount of discoveries of human bones and human artifacts increases. Say if you go back several hundred million years, you find very few surviving artifacts and bones of a human nature. Mm. As you come closer and closer to the present, they increase more and more. You know, for example, in the period of time between, say, 50 million and 30 million years ago, you get an increasing number of discoveries. Uh, in the time between 5 and 10 million years ago, you get more. So, so as you come closer to the modern human limit that's recognized in modern science, say about 200,000 years, you get more and more anomalous discoveries. So, mm. so that's how it works. You know, the closer, the closer you get to 200,000 years, the more anomalous discoveries you're going to find. But in such a case, Michael, it would go to show that there's a more gradual, natural uh, evolution, and, and it wouldn't indicate then an enormous catastrophe that wipes out everything. It would uh, actually show more like a gradient evolution. Yeah. Uh, all that I'm claiming to show in forbidden archaeology is evidence showing that human beings like us existed before 200,000 years ago. I'm not claiming to have discovered evidence that shows uh, a pattern of repeated appearances and disappearances. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's that that would be another 
couple of decades of research to come up with something that would demonstrate that. Although I would say that there are some hints of such things Mm. in the history of life on Earth. There have been periodic catastrophes and extinction events Mm. that have occurred. For example, if you look at paleontology, they will tell you that over the past several hundred million years in the history of life on Earth, there have been six major extinction events. Wow, six. And that's in the mainstream, right? Yeah, that's even in the mainstream. Mm. And or sometimes they say five. Actually, in the news recently, uh, there have been scientists claiming that the sixth major extinction event is starting now with the wiping out of the large mammalian species in various parts of the world. Mm. So, But if you look at the others, uh, approximately when are they dated to? Well, the last one was the one that wiped out the dinosaurs mm. about uh, 65 million years ago. And then you go a couple hundred million years before that, there was another one. A couple hundred million years before that, another, and so on. Uh, the usual number is six. Yeah. You know, if you do a, a search on the web for extinction events, you'll you'll find it. You'll see the charts. So it does seem that that even in modern science, there's a recognition of periodic catastrophes mm. and that don't necessarily wipe out every kind of life on Earth, but a substantial portion of the species that are existing at any particular point in time. Mm. But uh, But that, as I said, it goes beyond what I showed in Forbidden Archaeology. What I can show in Forbidden Archaeology is extreme human antiquity. Right. And as far as these other things that I also believe, there are many things that I believe that I can't necessarily give a whole lot of evidence for. Mm. Among the things that I do believe I think for extreme human antiquity, there is a considerable amount of evidence. But for all the details of how human populations may have increased and decreased or perhaps vanished and reappeared, that I haven't accumulated the kind of evidence I would need to demonstrate that. No, but I mean, it's such a huge task and it's an ongoing process. So as long as you, you stick to it, hopefully more will come out of this. I have to say, there is this, uh, he's, now, he's now passed away, but this brilliant scientist, his name was Dr. Tom van Flandern. And he published a book, you know, I forgot the title, of, uh, even though I have it in my shelf over there, but... <laughs> he uh, made a very solid uh, scientific astronomical case for that the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter was once a planet. So this goes to the exploded planet hypothesis. And he argued, you know, th this wasn't just uh, theories, but actual findings showed that it was a water planet. 
And he even, he didn't make a lot of room for speculation around it, but he was open for the possibility that there may have been intelligent life on this planet and that this goes into everything like uh, the comets, uh, it goes into Mars and uh, stuff about Mars that we will come back to in another program regarding this. But also dovetailing with the catastrophes on Earth, because if such a planet did explode so close to Earth, it would harbing a, a near extinction level at Earth. So there's so much corroborating evidence out there, but of course there's no interdisciplinary studies of it, at least not in mainstream academia. But I think these things should also be taken into consideration, as should stuff like the Vedas that, that you're familiar with. Isn't there a story in the Vedas about the earth burning? And then they found, later they found evidence for having been a worldwide uh, fire? Well, there, there is an interesting account that <clears throat> in an ancient times and very ancient times several hundred million years ago the earth was overrun by plants the entire earth became covered by forest and there's an account in the Puranas the ancient historical text of India that there were some sages they manifested a huge cosmic fire that devastated all this huge amount of vegetation that had kind of taken over the earth planet mm. and I found it was kind of interesting that all over the world you have coal deposits mm. which are about the right age for this mm. In other words, about 300 million years old, between 280 and 320 million years old. Wow. So, uh, so yeah, there there was this account that the Earth was covered by vegetation, and then there was to get rid of it all. There was this huge cosmic fire that was manifested, mm. and and then all and th this was a couple, a few hundred million years ago, and all around the world you've got coal deposits mm, mm. which look like charred plant remains in a sense mm. you know if you think about it so I've reflected on that I haven't published anything on this but you know since you brought it up mm. that's something that had occurred to me yeah, but it's stuff like this that you can find when you start to compare different disciplines like mythology, astronomy, solar studies, etc. And that's this is why your work is so important because in in the future, if mankind makes it, and I don't only mean at the physical level, I mean also at the mental level, if our consciousness is free and we can start to pursue the facts, the evidence then your work will go down into history as a groundbreaking uh, turn. This is why it's so important that you pursue this uh, in a very tidy, uh, orderly manner, where you both offer your own perspectives and you offer the facts, and you even try to find corroborating evidence like this. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, Al, that 
a multidisciplinary approach is almost required when you're talking about, uh, in effect, changing not just uh, the paradigm of a particular scientific discipline like chemistry or physics or whatever, but you're you're talking about a whole worldview, really. because if you add up the anomalous evidence in all, all the different fields of scientific investigation, it seems to amount not to just changes in particular scientific disciplines, but an overall uh, change of a whole worldview or cosmological perspective. Mm. And you know, to get back to uh, this idea of periodic catastrophes, uh, one idea that we find in the cosmological text of ancient India is the idea of cyclical time, mm-hmm. time proceeding in vast cycles. And one of these cycles was called the Day of Brahma, or the Kalpa, as it's known in Sanskrit. And this day of Brahma is followed by a night of Brahma. Mm. And then it's followed by another day, another night. And the day lasts for 4,320,000,000 years, according to the accounts. And the night lasts the same period of time. Mm. And it's stated in the cosmological text that during the days, life is manifest in the universe. Mm. And during the nights, it's dormant. Right. Like in a sleeping or dreaming state. Mm. And according to the cosmological text, the day of Brahma is divided into 14 sub-cycles called Mandantars, and each one lasts about 300 million years. So according to the Vedic cosmological calendar, we're now in about the middle of the seventh Mandantar in the, this current day of Brahma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So between each Mandantar, according to the text, there is a devastation that wipes out life on Earth. Mm. And we were talking about periodic catastrophes. So according to these ancient texts, there are periodic catastrophes that wipe out life on Earth uh, at the end of every Manvantar, which means once every 300 million years. Mm. So now, according to the Vedic astronomical texts, we're in the seventh Manvantar of the current day of Brahma. Right. That means there have been six Manvantars before us. That means six devastations. Hmm. If you look at modern paleontology, it says over that same period of time, there have been six major extinction events in the history of life on Earth. So I think that's an interesting parallel. And as you were saying, unless somebody was familiar with a whole lot of different scientific disciplines and different worldviews Mm -hmm. and cultural outlooks, you wouldn't be aware of that parallel, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of interesting. 
Indeed. That the ancient Sanskrit texts talk about six devastations, and modern science over the same period of time talks about six major extinction events. Mm. So, well, this can this is backed up by other traditions too. I mean, uh, both uh, Native Americans and the Greeks and many others operated with this idea of cycles. I remember. I read a compersion, I think it was in Professor Jocelyn Goodwin's work, where he went through all this and systemized it. Very interesting. And also, maybe the Theosophists, there are someone who has said that the days of and nights of Brahman corresponds to the expansion and the contraction of the universe. And and this is just one of dozens of parallels between uh, modern scientific uh, findings about the universe and ancient writings. I mean, we could have a field day going into all such parallels, especially compared to the old Indian lore. Oh, sure. <laughs> As you know. Well, another feature of that ancient cosmology was the idea of many universes, a multiverse. Because they had the idea that universes are coming out from the body of a being they called the Maha Vishnu, Ah. who's lying in a causal ocean, dreaming. And when he breathes out, millions of universes come out of him. Mm. And then when he breathes in, millions of universes re-enter him. And when the universes come out, they expand. When they come back in, they contract. Exactly. So it's an idea that's become very common in modern cosmology, the idea that there are many universes, not just one, and that they're expanding and contracting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, one more question about the the more trivial facts, and then I have some more, um, should we say, speculative questions. Lucy, supposedly she's uh, a mother, isn't that what the the mainstream uh, standard hypothesis say today? Yeah, some of the mainstream scientists would say that that she was a human ancestor. Of course, I, I I don't accept that, but let's hear your uh, take on it then. Well, if we look at all the evidence, we'll see that at the same time Lucy was existing about between three and four million years ago in Africa, that human beings like us were also existing, mm. and. Some examples that I could give as evidence for that are the Laetoli footprints, which are indistinguishable from modern human footprints, Mm. uh, but they're almost four million years old. There's also the case of the human skeletons that were discovered at a place called Castanedolo in northern Italy in the 19th century by the Italian geologist Giuseppe Ragazzoni. Uh, They're between three and four million years old. So we have evidence that humans like us were existing at the same time as Lucy. Mm, mm, mm. But Lucy herself, if we actually look at the evidence, was about between three and three and a half feet tall. In other words, about a meter high. 
Ooh. and was was very ape-like. Mm. You know, scientists have carefully studied the anatomy of the bones, and they show she had uh, curved finger bones and toe bones that are sort of like monkey finger bones and toe bones in the sense that they're curved so that they could easily hang from branches of trees. The shoulder joint of Lucy is pointing upward, again, perhaps indicating that she was spending a lot of time hanging from branches right. and trees by her arms. Mm. So, so you've got a lot of evidence that this creature was very ape-like in her anatomy and very small, very primitive, and not very human-like at all, really. So why did they think we, we stem from her then? Well, because of their commitment to this <laughs> Darwinian concept of yes, evolution. Yes, but why Lucy? Why Lucy? Why not any well, other ape they find? Well, another, they, as, and actually if you look even among the mainstream scientists, some are going to say Lucy was an ancestor, some will say not. Okay. But, but uh, those that do are so convinced of it, they try to humanize mm. her, make her look as human as possible by giving her a name, Lucy. Right. You know, for example, <laughs> which gives you the idea, say like if you just read in some newspaper report that Scientists have discovered the skeleton of Australopithecus afarensis in Ethiopia. Wouldn't mean anything to you. you know, Australopithecus afarensis, what's that? You'll imagine an ape, basically. You might not even imagine that unless you <laughs> knew a little something about it. Right. You know, it's just some Latin name. Yeah. You know? Mm. But if you call it Lucy, then, you know, your mother's name might be Lucy, your sister's name might be Lucy, your girlfriend's name might be Lucy. So you, yeah. you, you think, yeah. And it's Latin for light, incidentally. <laughs> right. Well, I think where the name came from was Lucy in the Sky. Oh, yeah, Diamond. that's right. Yeah, they were listening to that or something. They were listening yeah, to that song yeah. when they discovered, you know, like, you know, in the camp where the archaeologists were staying. Yeah. They were playing that song over and over again, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So, but, uh, but then you just think, okay, Lucy, I'm related. Could be my mother. Could be my ancient ancestor. I think it's a propaganda technique. And it's not even consensus in the mainstream. No, it's not even a consensus in the mainstream. But it's a very common propaganda technique for those who are very much committed to this idea that human beings like us evolved from more primitive ape-like creatures to try to humanize these ape-like ancestors to the maximum extent possible. And one way they do that is by giving them human names. Mm. Another example is discoveries that were made on Flores Island in... Indonesia a few years ago, you know, they found uh, bones of, again, a very short, 
somewhat primitive, ape-like kind of creature, and they wanted to get attention for it. Mm. So, you know, if you were reading in a newspaper article, you know, scientists discover fragmentary remains of Homo floresiensis in Indonesia, you wouldn't pay very much attention to it. But if you see a big headline, scientists discover Hobbit, yeah, you yeah, know, in, yeah. In which they did. They attached this name Hobbit. Yeah, I remember to it. Yeah, you know, then then you begin to yeah, wow, this is amazing. They <laughs> discover the Hobbit. Yeah. So they're they're just propaganda techniques, I think, to humanize these kinds of discoveries. I mean, it's it's it, it's a side point, but no, yeah. In this day and age, uh, we have tools like genetics. So, what does genetics say about these things? I mean, it should be possible to to use it as one tool of many to find out something here. So, uh, do you know anything about that? Well, one problem is is they the they've been able to recover dna not from the more ancient supposed ancestors like lucy who existed three or four million years ago they have been able to recover some usable dna from uh specimens of neanderthal who lived in yeah uh around forty thousand years ago mm and coexisted with humans like us mm. and you know there's evidence recently reported i mean just this year you know that they found a neanderthal bone i think in romania a jaw bone that they were able to recover some dna from and they've kind of concluded that modern human that this that modern humans have actually it was a modern human bone that they say contained up to about 10% Neanderthal DNA. Yeah. So they discovered, as I said, a Homo sapiens jawbone in Romania, and they analyzed the DNA in it, and they said it had about 10% Neanderthal DNA. And it was so recent that they concluded that the humans of that time must have been mating yeah. with the Neanderthals, which means they're not separate species. Exactly. I actually had a question and a reasoning uh, prepared for that. But they don't they don't have uh, uh, DNA evidence from Homo erectus or Australopithecus or the more ancient ones. If they ever do manage to recover some, then we might be able to talk about right. it. Right. That was my big question, because then they could, uh, you know, take tests of the anomalies too, and it would uh, settle all disputes. But apparently they can't go further back than uh, Neanderthals then. Right, at the present moment. I see. And not, e- not even the most ancient Neanderthals, the more recent Neanderthals. Right. Okay, let me let me address then uh, the, my Neanderthal question, and uh, it's a little reasoning and then a question, so uh, just indulge me here. 
most people think that uh, <laughs> they're not aware, actually, of how many currents there are within uh, this field. They, they imagine there's Darwinism and, there's, and then there's creationism, and, and that's about it. But, uh, you know, many different hypotheses and schools of thought in mainstream anthropology has a that is true has a, yeah, yeah. True. yeah and even within evolutionism there is competing branches especially back before the current version howled its position now interestingly back when different versions of evolutionism and also just in general anthropological uh, theories were existing more variant than today and when they fought to become the establishment dogma uh, especially in the late 19th century there was a dark horse that emerged this uh, was not a scientist but actually a theosophist Uh, i'm referring to madame blavatsky and she engaged in the scientific debates and carved out an independent theory, some kind of early version of intelligent design, maybe combined with evolutionism. I'd call it spiritual evolutionism. We could perhaps call it that. But anyway, my point is that she engaged in the contemporary debates among anthropologists in a volume of her monumental book series called The Secret Doctrine. I think it was the fourth volume where she simply destroys her opponents, or Darwinists and other versions of evolutionism. And, well, you have to read it to see what I mean. It's very impressive work. It's logical, it's scientific. And I'll give you one example that leads us into the Neanderthal question. She said in the last uh, part of the 19th century, she argued that the Neanderthals is not a separate species, but just a variation of sapiens. And, of course, as everybody knows, for something to be defined as a species... You cannot breed and have children. The most you can have is sterile children. But now, 100 years later, like you were saying here with this example, we have several finds that indicates, uh, actually it basically proves uh, by these discoveries that there was successful crossbreeding. Not saying that Neanderthals disappeared solely because of crossbreeding, but at least we know that there was crossbreeding, making... I think they say that uh, genetics say that modern people is a carrier of the Neanderthal genome. I think it's everybody but the black people uh, or something like that. So this proves that Neanderthals are sapiens, just a local variation. What's your take on that? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. When I wrote Forbidden Archaeology in 1993, it was published. I was taking Neanderthals as a separate species. Um, and I wasn't including them in the evidence for extreme human antiquity. Rather, I was treating them as ape men who were coexisting with anatomically modern humans. Right. But since that time, I've changed my mind a little bit on this question, and I've come to see the Neanderthals as part of Homo sapiens. And there's so what that does is it increases my evidence for extreme human antiquity to now include 
the Neanderthal specimens. Ah. So, uh, which go back, you know, maybe, I mean, the standard idea is that the Neanderthals existed from about 200,000 years ago to maybe 30,000 years ago, or maybe even 300,000 years. Hmm. So, uh, and, you know, there are, I mean, the genetic reasons are, as you've explained, but there's other reasons as well. Say they used to try to physically identify Neanderthal skulls, for example, by saying, okay, they have big eyebrow ridges. Right. Most of us, if we run our fingers over our foreheads above the eyes, it's kind of smooth. Uh, we don't see a big ridge of bone there. <clears throat> But actually, there are some living humans who do have. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I was thinking that when you said it. <laughs> so, so what are we going to do? Are we going to classify those humans <laughs> as a different species? No, we don't. We, I mean, there, there are some uh, Australian Aboriginal people who have skulls like that. There are people in South America who have skulls like that with big eyebrow ridges, sometimes some solid bar of bone going across yeah. the forehead above the eyes. I can think of one leading Hollywood star too, a white guy. Yeah, uh, there, are, there are living humans like that. We don't consider them to be a different species. So if we don't consider the living humans who have those characteristics to be a different mm. species, why should we consider the fossil? Right. The fossils that have those same characteristics to be a different species. So I've kind of modified my views on, on the Neanderthals as a result of these kinds of considerations. Yeah, but there are other finds too. They found that they had ceremonial buries. That's the cultural evidence, that's right. Right, they had music instruments, they were worshipping the bear. Apparently they had some kind of matriarchal structure. They're said to be very peaceful and not these brutish um, creatures they've been portraying before. Right, and that, and that they were absolutely. And that they were introspective. Now, I've even seen serious mainstream theories, although they are not accepted in consensus, but that the gingers are descendants is kind of a, a Neanderthal uh, feature. And even the autism gene, there are some uh, hypotheses out there about that connected to Neanderthal. So I find the Neanderthal question extremely fascinating. Yeah, so... Uh as I've said, as a result of all those different considerations, I've personally modified my own views on mm. where to put the Neanderthals in terms of what species they are. Okay, let's shift gears. My next question is, what's the weirdest piece of evidence you've come across? Uh, well, there are some... <clears throat> weird things. Like one of them, it's a mysterious object that was discovered in South Africa. And these are round metallic objects that come from uh, a mine in South Africa in the western Transvaal region near a town called Otostal. And you know, I call them metallic because 
that have been analyzed as being made of mostly a mineral called hematite. Mm -hmm. And hematite is a naturally occurring kind of iron. And it's considered to be a semi-precious stone. You can buy hematite jewelry. And, yeah, these round objects are kind of weird. You know, they're, they're round and they have parallel grooves, some of them, that go around the center of each object. Some of them have one parallel, one groove. Some of them have two grooves, three, right. four. And, you know, they came to my attention a long time ago. And some years ago, there was a television producer that read my book, Forbidden Archaeology, and I had a photograph of one of these objects in there. Yeah. They're very mysterious. They're found in mineral deposits over two billion years old. Wow. And, you know, they're, they look like they're, they had to have been made by somebody. You know, somebody had... Nobody's really been able to give me a, a very convincing explanation of how the grooves formed on these objects. But as I said, you know, there was a television producer that read Forbidden Archaeology, and he wanted to include some of the cases in a documentary that he produced for one of the big... Uh, American television networks, NBC. Mm. The documentary was called The Mysterious Origins of Man. Mm. And the producer was Bill Cote. And he, he wanted to include this case in the documentary, but NBC, the television network, said to him, well, you have to get this object analyzed by some independent metallurgist. Mm -hmm. So he did that. He found a company of metallurgists to analyze the object. And you know, they said they couldn't really explain how the grooves had formed naturally on the object, which leaves open the possibility that you know, they had to have been made by someone with human-like intelligence a very long time ago. Mm. Now, I've got an open mind about this. If somebody can give a really convincing, naturalistic explanation of how these things formed, well, I would be prepared to accept that. Mm. But up to the present moment, I'm not really convinced by any of the explanations that have been offered. So I think that we can remain open to the possibility that these things were made by someone with human-like intelligence mm. over two billion years ago, which is a long time. So mm. that's one of the more extreme anomalies. You know. But one thing is to explain it. But it's weird. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, and I have to confess that for some of these extreme anomalies, the reports did not initially come from scientific sources. Mm. And they came, you know, because sometimes, you know, there's, you know, different categories of literature. 
and one of them is tabloid newspapers where you can find some pretty weird things. But I've never accepted anything simply on the basis of a report from a tabloid newspaper. I mean, the first thing I did was I got in touch with the Natural History Museum in South Africa where this particular object was being kept. Mm. And I got in touch with the director of the museum, and he provided me with whatever information he had. Mm. He said, yes, the objects do exist. Uh, we have some photographs of them, and he sent me one. And he also included whatever scientific evidence he had right. about these kinds of objects. So it's if you, if you just ask me about weird, I think this <laughs> is weird. Yeah, but there's no question about the age? Uh, not according to the scientists who've looked at them. Mm. You know, they come from a formation that's been well studied in South Africa. Okay. It's a pre-Cambrian formation. So once I went to South Africa and I spoke with the chief mining engineer from the mine where these objects are found. Mm. And I met him in his office in Johannesburg, and he showed me a, a big block of mineral from the mine, you know, about, uh, about a meter, a cubic meter sized chunk of rock. Mm. And it had these round objects embedded in it, like raisins and a piece of cake or something, mm -hmm. you know. So I could see them. There's this solid block of mineral from the mine. It's got these objects embedded in it. Uh, the formation from which these objects come has been studied. It's a Precambrian formation, a couple of billion years old. Wow. So that's so that's, uh, that's so old. Of course, like one possible objection would be well these are natural concretions and maybe somebody carved the lines on them, the grooves on them later but uh, in this block of mineral that I saw you know there were these round objects partially protruding from the rock and I could see on them the grooves that went back into the solid rock Right. you know so so now, there was another interest, interesting thing that happened. After this documentary aired, you know, there was a Dutch television producer. You know, he got in touch with me and said, okay, I saw these. I want to go to South Africa and see this object. Mm -hmm. So I put him in touch with the director of the Natural History Museum where these things were being held and the director told us he wrote back to me that the object that we had the photograph of had been stolen from the museum wow huh anyways if you ask for a weird case yeah. that's about the weirdest <laughs> that i came up with Although in my research, it's it's probably the most extreme, oldest anomaly that I even mentioned in the book, 
And I mention these things to be really complete. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, present it's like I said, it's an extreme anomaly, and I'm not sure, quite sure how to react to it, mm. even myself. But no, I'm, I'm it taking de- it. Definitely, it definitely fits in the weird category. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm taking back by, by that. But the disappearance, I can think of several good reasons for that one to disappear if it's that extremely old. Wow. But uh, when we talk about weird... Uh, was... But it, it may have been for another reason. Let me add some details. Yeah, sure. In the original reports in the tabloid literature, I mean, this isn't something I verified myself, but mm-hmm. the original tabloid report said that the object was spinning by itself wow. in its display case, you know, slowly rotating. Now, that could be because of vibrations of foot traffic or vehicular traffic outside the museum. And, you know, there's some little vibration in the display case that's causing it to slowly rotate. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it was that this object had some kind of power Mm. by which it was rotating like that. So another detail is that when the director wrote to me that the object has been stolen, he said it was stolen by a person he called a white witch. What? A white witch? Yes. What's that supposed to mean? Well, (laughs) it's weird, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's just getting weirder and weirder. It's just getting weirder and weirder. Uh, Well, sometimes people... I don't know, they make a, a distinction between white magic and black magic. Oh, right. You know, so, I don't know, yeah. white yeah. witch. <clears throat> yeah, probably very valuable. That's one reason it could be stolen. Another is... Well, I, I think there are more. I mean, there are many of these objects that come from that mine, ah. so it's not that they're particularly rare. Ah. <clears throat> it's not like that was the single one, but, uh, but that one became a little bit famous because it appeared on this television documentary, Mysterious Origins of Man. Right. So it's... Yeah, I was, I was thinking conspiratorial too. I was thinking a control mechanism. Let's get rid of this piece of evidence. But obviously... That could also happen. Well, but there's still a cave, a mine of more. So um, I, I'm, I'm predicting there will become an Ancient Aliens episode on this object. Maybe there already <laughs> has been. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Although I, I did appear in some episodes of Ancient Aliens, I haven't seen every single one. But I was, I was going for weird in the direction of, let's say, the Star Child skull, the very famous elongated skulls, which looks like kind of a prototype of alien skull. There are skulls with horns, apparently. And there's also a question. I actually asked you about this on Facebook once, uh, about giants. Could you address um, these phenomenons, giants, star child, elongated horns, etc.? Well, uh, in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, I was concentrating on anomalies within 
kind of the basic framework of humans as we know them. Ah, Now, if we look at giants, for example, I don't Mm. mention evidence for giants in forbidden archaeology, although I'm aware of many reports of evidence for giants. There are many reports that bones of large size humans have been found. My Mm. problem with, you know, my problem with those reports is I've never been able to verify any of them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the way I operate, uh, of course, one thing I do is I look at archival reports, you know, original scientific reports about anomalous evidence. Mm-hmm. But in many cases, I actually go to the museums where these artifacts or human bones are being kept I directly confirm that they exist. I, you know, so I like to do that, hmm. at least in some cases. It's not that I've been able to personally verify every single case that I mention in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, but in a, a number of cases, I actually have been able to verify the objects actually exist. Right. And, and that gives some... Uh, Uh, license for including similar cases that I may not have been able to personally verify, but I've been able to verify some Mm. similar cases. In the case of humans of large size, I have not up to this point been able to personally verify any of the reported cases. Mm. Now, I believe that humans of large size giants did exist in the Mm. past. And I'm kind of waiting to be able to verify at least one or two of the cases myself. Mm. And that would give me the, I I would feel then comfortable in reporting in my books and other presentations, other things that I may not not necessarily have been able to verify myself Mm -hmm. physically. Mm. Um, So that's my basic approach to the giant evidence. Because, of course, if you go on the web, you can see so many photographs. But verifying any of those is another question. Many of them are hoaxes. (laughs) Yeah. So... Like, as I said, I'm personally convinced, my personal conviction is large-sized humans did exist in the past. And by large size, I mean over three meters. Oh, thank you for using meters for once. Most guests (laughs) use foot. But three meters is is a giant indeed. (laughs) Yeah. I mean... You go a little bit less than that. There are people alive like that today. They play on the basketball teams. Yeah. Hey, for the benefit of our American listeners, which are creeping up to become now half of them, uh, how much is this in feet? Well, if you're talking about seven feet, there are a lot of basketball players who are seven feet tall. Yeah, but three meters. uh, Three meters would be nine or ten feet. (laughs) Right. So they, ten yeah. feet, ten feet. Nobody like that living today. That I. What's the, do you do, do you know the record? 
proven record? I think the there are a couple of people living today who are eight feet. I think there's even one who's nine feet. I think he's from Mongolia. Yeah, I think uh, the Guinness record holder is a Turk. Um, and then there's uh, the sm- I, I saw him in a report compared with the he met actually the smallest man and the largest man they met right and it was quite a sight <laughs> like two different species right <laughs> right but what about so, uh, what about the others the elongated and horns and all this stuff well you know alternative archaeology is a big field. Mm. And I've kind of concentrated my work on the more <clears throat> human-like aspect right. of things. Of course, I'm aware of all these other reports, but I haven't really... I mean, I, I know uh, Mr. Forster, who's kind of concentrated on his research on the elongated skulls from Peru and places like that in South America. Brian Forster. Uh, I know these researchers. I'm familiar with their work, but I haven't really dug deeply into it myself Mm. you know i've got my special area that i've been working on of course i'm as i said i'm aware of all these other things Mm -hmm. but i i don't feel i can comment on them with a whole lot of authority any more than maybe some of your listeners so Mm. who, who may be more expert in these things than i am so, <clears throat> the one thing I would say is I'm very open to all of these things because, as I've said, I get a lot of inspiration for my work from my studies in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, which speak about 400,000 human-like species scattered throughout the universe. So... <clears throat> So there's, I, I would think there's a lot of diversity that's yeah. possible there. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a lot of possibilities for human extraterrestrial hybrids and all that. Those are all things I'm prepared to accept. But I haven't really dug deeply into these things myself. I'm aware of them. Mm as part of the alternative archaeology field. Mm. But what I specialize in is archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. Mm-hmm. And when, when I say human antiquity, I mean humans like us, mm. the normal Sa- ones. Who sapiens, sapiens. Yeah. Mm. Now, well, some of these other things may fit and some expanded definition of Homo sapiens sapiens, but yeah, yeah, but uh, it's not in the mainstream yet, at least. <laughs> well, whether it's in the mainstream or not, it's not my particular field of research. Although I am aware of these things, and I know some of the researchers who are involved in this kind of work, and I respect their work. Sure. I have the. I share your attitude. I'm open to it, as any sensible person should be. But I'm uh, awaiting evidence. You know, to to. I mean, we can't be sure. We can't be certain unless stuff can be verified or falsified, etc. So this is an important principle. The scientific method is. Now the scientific institution. <laughs> that's a different question. 
But thank God for the method, because otherwise you wouldn't be here to, to tell us of what's out there. So we appreciate that. Yeah, but I think it's <clears throat> one thing uh, I'd like to mention is that some scientists are a little bit open-minded. There are some who are what I would call fundamentalist materialists, and you know, they, they have their commitments, and they're not very open to considering alternatives. But there are some who are willing to listen to alternatives, and it's scientists in that category who are, in a sense, responsible for the fact that I've been able to present dozens of scientific papers at mainstream international scientific conferences about my work. Right. So fortunately, there are some scientists who are willing to listen to alternative ideas if they're presented in a scientific way. And my most recent book, My Science, My Religion, is a collection of 24 papers that I have presented on various aspects of my work at mainstream international scientific conferences, and some of them have been published in scientific journals and conference proceedings volumes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people ask if I have any peer-reviewed scientific publications, and yes, I do have some. Mm. That uh, leads me to another question. Uh, when you've been lecturing and uh, promoting your work in different uh, scientific circles around the globe, where would you say, you, uh, of course this is just uh, impressions and an anecdotes I guess, but where would you say you have the impression that they are most open if you can pinpoint a, a culture, a country, uh, or, or, or some kind of geographical identification? Or isn't there, is there just a handful here and a handful there? Do you see any signs of more openness some places than others? Well, I haven't been everywhere, so I can't <laughs> say. But but I would say, I mean, one, one uh, way to judge is the level of the scientific institutions at which you have been invited to speak in different countries. Mm. Now, uh, in Russia once, I was invited to present my ideas at a meeting of the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow, a meeting of their anthropology section. And I would have to say, I haven't been, I haven't received any invitation from the American Academy of Sciences to mm. present my findings. So it's so I would say it, it can be quite surprising sometime. Mm. Uh, when I was writing my book Forbidden Archaeology in the 1980s, I never suspected that I would be invited to a meeting of the Russian Academy of Sciences and Moscow, or that I would be invited <laughs> to speak at the Darwin Museum in Moscow, wow. or at Moscow Government University. So, yeah, that's kind of interesting. In one sense, it seems that there is, I mean, from the standpoint of being uh, from America, which has the reputation of being a place of freedom of expression and freedom of thought, mm. that 
you know, sometimes in other countries, I'm able to present my ideas more freely and at higher levels of the scientific institutions than I am in America. Mm. So, you know, that's something to consider. I think these questions have taken on a political dimension yeah, in, exactly. in America that is quite extreme mm. in some ways. Mm, mm. So, uh, uh, but I pretty much, I found things to be pretty much the same all over. Uh, the the dominant mainstream evolutionary ideas of human origins are are very dominant in the scientific circles and educational circles all around the world. Mm. But nevertheless, there are scientists in all parts of the world who are open to hearing alternative ideas. And I think that's important because if ideas are going to change, the first step is there have to be scientists who are willing to listen to right. new ideas. Yeah. And there are some mm. like that, I find, in all parts of the world. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. And especially, I think the new generation of scientists has to be made aware of this at an early point before they manage to freeze into their... A dogmatic uh, structure or thinking. Well, see, that is one of the huge problems because that group within the scientific world who is very much committed to the current paradigm has managed to convince governments all over the world to give them a the monopoly in the education system. Yeah. Mm. Which means the new generation of scientists that are being trained in those institutions are exposed only to the dominant ideas. They're not they're taught that all other ideas are somehow or other illegitimate. Mm. Which means they tend to stay away from those ideas if they want to make any progress in their scientific careers. And I think until there's some changes in the education system, we're going to run into problems mm. where, whereby even if scientists who make their way into the scientific institutions do have some interest in these things they have to keep it secret they have to yeah. keep it pri mm, private mm, mm. Uh, which is not a very healthy situation no no great okay uh, i have a couple of more questions for you before we wrap this up going back then to more scenario thinking when i was little uh, i always thought uh, from as long as i can remember uh, at some point i connected two dots i learned about the dinosaurs and about dragons and for me uh, in my uh, infant naivety i always regarded uh, dragon mythos as a remnant memory of dinosaurs so what do you think about this dinosaurs and dragons well it's something that I haven't thought deeply about, probably no more than the average person. Uh, one thing I do know is that <clears throat> there are 
researchers in a field called cryptozoology, which means kind of the study of anomalous animals. And when I looked into the literature on cryptozoology, I saw there are a few scientists who have reported on the phenomenon of living dinosaurs, right. you know, in remote areas of the world, whether we're talking about perhaps the Amazon region or the Congo region in Africa. You know, there are there have been reports of living dinosaurs which would open up the possibility of recently surviving dinosaurs in various parts of the world which may have been the source of these dragon reports so mm. th that those cryptozoology reports may have some relevance here yeah, but uh, if we entertain the hypothesis, which we can substantiate, of course, based upon all the findings, then mankind has lived even longer back than dinosaurs, which means that at some point they must have lived parallel, which means one way or the other, this went into our subconsciousness as mythos, archetypes. That is a possibility. As, as far as I'm concerned, that possibility is there. Uh, if we look at the evidence that I reported in Forbidden Archaeology. We have evidence for humans like us existing before the time of the dinosaurs, during the time of the dinosaurs, and after the time of the dinosaurs. So, Isn't there even a footprint? Yeah, now that's in interesting. There's a case from the Paluxy River in Texas uh, near a town called Glen Rose. And there are reports that human footprints have been found alongside dinosaur footprints and very ancient layers of rock there. I was aware of these reports when I wrote Forbidden Archaeology, but I didn't include them in the book because uh, the Christian creationist scientist who first oh, yeah. brought these to the attention of the public, uh, uh, a scientist named Henry Morris Jr., I think it was, uh, he backtracked on his original reports. In other words, he had reported originally that there were human footprints alongside the dinosaur footprints at... Mm this Paluxy River site in Texas in layers of rock from the Cretaceous period about 120 million years old. So he originally said there were human footprints alongside dinosaur footprints, but later he decided perhaps those human footprints were dinosaur footprints that had been subjected to erosion, which modified them so that they looked like human footprints. Oh. So because the original scientist, Christian creationist scientist, who had reported these things, had withdrawn his original reports, I decided not to include those reports 
in my book Forbidden Archaeology. But later, after Forbidden Archaeology was published, an archaeology student from Texas wrote to me and said, is there anything I can do to help you with your research? So I told this archaeology student that she should go to that Paluxy River site and let me know what she thought mm. of what was going on there. Mm. So she went and she actually participated in some new excavations there. And in these new excavations, new footprints, human footprints, were discovered in the same layers as dinosaur footprints. Mm. So she sent me a lot of reports you know from different scientists that were involved in these new discoveries and on that basis in a, a new book that i'm writing which i think i'm going to call more forbidden archaeology mm. i'm going to include some evidence from that paluxy river site excellent so you're actually wow so you are now in the process of coming up with a second volume, so to speak, of this subject. Yes, because since the original book was published, new cases have come to my attention and some new details about some of the cases that I did include in the book have come to my attention. So I want to present that information to my readers and I think the best way to do it is in a new book that I'm going to call More Forbidden Archaeology. Excellent. Um, th uh, this means that uh, we will get an update but do you think this new book will be <laughs> will it be as big of a brick as the old one or? It may not be quite as as big as the 900 pages in Forbidden Archaeology, but uh, we'll have to see. Yeah. You know, it's, forbidden Archaeology took me eight years to research and write, so it takes, for me, this kind of research is really kind of painstaking because you know, I want to dig into you know, the latest geological reports about the ages of formations in which objects are found and all. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, uh, it takes me, I wish I could be like some authors and put out a book every year, but for <laughs> me, somehow or other, it just takes me time. I'll tell you, we have some authors on the show who even puts out two, two books a year. Right, I know. I, I wish I could be, be like that. For for, for those who want to keep up, who want to read something from me, you know, I publish a column in a magazine called Atlantis Rising. You know, the column is called The Forbidden Archaeologist, so it comes out six times a year. Mm. And, you know, that's how I satisfy my desire to have something coming out for my readers, you know, between books. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, when we have uh, made your presentation at our website, our listeners can go there and find the links to all your, your work and sites. So, uh, yeah, 
that's good information. I will just comment upon this point also, though, that some of your criticists, or I should say these so-called debunkers, one of their arguments against your work is that, oh, oh, he's just reporting old cases, you know, it's, it's outdated. Of course, completely bypassing the fact that the mainstream theories... <laughs> also are based upon just as many, if not more, old cases. But now you're actually telling us that, no, you're also, uh, you're actually updating, you're verifying, trying to find new information, trying to find more information. So it's not that simple as how these agenda-driven debunkers frame it when they try to criticize you. Yeah, it's a very poor argument, you know, that... uh, (laughs) I'm I'm openly saying I'm doing research in the history of archaeology, which means I'm looking at the whole range of reports, which may be some of them from the last century or the century before that, and some of them may be the more, more recent discoveries, because I'm taking a broad view. And even if you look at any standard textbook of archaeology, it includes old cases, the first Neanderthal discoveries from 1859, the first Java man discoveries from 1893, the first Australopithecus discoveries from 1920. You know, the most, you know, if you look at any textbook of archaeology, it's not going to include only the cases discovered in the 21st century. It's going to include the whole range of cases. So in my work, I do something similar. And if you want to say, cases that are old are necessarily bad, but what's going to happen with today's cases <laughs> in 50 or 60 years? Are the, you know, I don't think scientific evidence has an expiration date. <laughs> you know, like you go to the supermarket to buy yeah. some milk or yogurt, it's got an expiration date on it, after which time it can't be sold anymore. I don't think scientific evidence is like that, that it has some expiration date on it. So Let's hope it never becomes a situation like that. <laughs> well, the debunkers would have you accept I know. Like they, they, they have such a short memory anyway. Now, okay. Now, our last question then to you for this time is because... This series we're doing here is about uh, antediluvian civilization. Now, of course, your work isn't so much into that, but it's it's an important approach to show that at least mankind has existed longer than what we led to believe. And even the official story, uh, there's something rotten in Denmark because they say, okay, 200,000 years, but oh, no, only five or eight thousand years of civilization. Of course, they have to backdate that all the time as new discoveries come in. Like uh, in Turkey, we have this... Um, Gobekli Tepe. For instance, yes. But my point is, let's say now, for the sake of hypothesis, that there were an advanced civilization prior to the last ice age. Now, an obvious question would be, where are the structures where are the traces? Uh, let's say for 20,000 years back, 50,000 years. Could you just, for people who are not so familiar with this natural answer, explain to us why this is a problem? Well, one problem is that a lot of our 
high-tech civilization types of things don't survive very well in the archaeological or geological record. And now this topic has come up in modern environmental studies. Uh, you know, many scientists are very concerned that our present worldwide technological industrial civilization is having a negative impact on the environment. Oh, sure. So, so many scientists have uh, wondered, well, what would happen if human beings disappeared from Earth today, right now? What would happen to the remains of our worldwide technological industrial civilization? And there have been interdisciplinary studies on this that have been published in, a, in scientific publications, but they've also made their way to the general public through documentaries that have aired on the National Geographic Channel, Discovery Channel. One of them was called World Without Us, mm. you know, and it directly addressed this question. So uh, they concluded that our stuff, you know, the remains of our big technological industrial civilization wouldn't really last very long. It wouldn't take the Earth quite very long to recover. Uh, you know, for example, most of our big cities are built on the edges of the ocean or large rivers. And if we didn't have all our water control systems, our dams and our seawalls and things like that being maintained, mm -hmm. well, a, a lot of our uh, uh, cities would be completely destroyed by floods and tsunamis and things like that. Mm. We also depend on our fire control systems, so fires would burn through throughout our cities and things like that. And as far as our big buildings are concerned, like we, most of our big buildings are based on uh, steel frame con construction, and over time those steel beams would begin to oxidize. Right. They, and then all the concrete and glass would break off and, and, and become crushed to just little pebbles that you wouldn't even recognize as the remains of a, of a civilization. And all our metal objects would begin to oxidize, like the cars and the planes and things like that. This stuff really doesn't last very long. I mean, once I was, uh, list, I was monitoring an email discussion on a scientific discussion group, and the question came up, what if... You know, millions of years ago, there was an advanced technological civilization like ours. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what would remain of it today? And the scientists were discussing among themselves, and they kind of came to the same conclusion of this more recent discussion that they've been having among environmental scientists about what would remain of our civilization after a few thousand years. Mm -hmm. I mean, the recent conclusion has been is that after several thousand years, when, you know, you wouldn't see very much 
And this discussion I was monitoring some years ago also came to the same conclusion. You know, they, they concluded that all you might see of some advanced civilization would be some little layers of uh, broken uh, pebbles and glass huh. that you wouldn't even necessarily recognize as the remains of a civilization unless you were studying very carefully. Right. So, so I think that has to be taken into account when we speak about these things. But, but did they say so? Uh, anything about how long approximately it would take before all traces are wiped out? Uh, we'd have to go look at the either the documentary or or the uh, scientific studies. But my recollection, without having it right here before me, okay. is that after about twenty thousand years or so, you would hardly see anything. Huh. Huh. But what about plastic? Isn't that supposed to not dissolve? Uh. Plastics will dissolve after some time. I mean, they can last a while, Mm. and they become problematic if you're talking about earth fills. But if you're talking about thousands and thousands of years, plastics will degrade. They have to work very hard to preserve some of the original plastics in museums today. Oh, okay. Huh. You know, like there are museums of material science. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, they have to work hard to preserve some of these things. Yeah, I see. Interesting. I mean, they are a nuisance in the short term, but the long term, they do degrade. <laughs> Let, let's hope our ancestors had the wisdom not to produce plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that's why a lot of what we see in the archaeological record is stone tools. Right. Now, now in those discussions about you know, the Neanderthals and others, you know, the scientists speculate, well, we're only seeing the stone tools these people left because stone tools preserve very well mm. in the archaeological record. But what about what if they had clothes made of leather or plant material? They had bags. They had all kinds of stuff mm. that may not have survived. Good point. Uh, again, we should uh, remind our listeners, especially those in, in Scandinavia or rather Norway, that you can experience Cremo on the mythology festival in Hardanger. Actually, <laughs> Hardanger, uh, that's how we say it in Norwegian. If I should say it in English, it would be hard anger in one word, uh-huh. hard anger. But I can promise you, Michael, it should be rather named soft mildness when you <laughs> come to that place. It's anything but hard anger. Uh, how long will you stay there? Uh, I will be there through the entire festival, which goes through uh, 31 July through August 2. So nice. I will be there for the whole thing. Mm. But my my talk is on the evening of the 31st of July, the last day of July. 
And what is? How do you pronounce the name of the nature park? I I I see it's spelled Lundarheg. Even I have problems with pronouncing that, to be quite honest. So, but um, uh, we will put up actually a link okay. so that people can find it. It's in, it's a place called Kvinherad in Hardanger. Uh, as for the place itself, I need to see it written to. But I, I remember when I saw it, I was thinking, geez, is this a Norse word? <laughs> but you know, you are in the inland, and Norway is famous for having so many accents and dialects. Dialects. That, yeah, yeah, we don't, we hardly even understand each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, but okay, I, I'm a bit embarrassed because I am from this part of the country. But uh, but you have the link. You have the. Link, I have the link, and you know what? I'm going there with a with some friends, so I'll see you there. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yes, and I hope uh, hope you will find some time off your schedule to to browse the area a little, because uh, you are in a pearl nature-wise. So if you if you're into nature, if you're into beauty and stuffs, uh, I suggest you explore a little, if you have time for it. It will be memory worth. I can promise you. Yeah. Yeah, I also have to consider my host brought me there, so whatever they... Yeah, I hope they arrange for something for you. Yeah. Mm. Uh, last question about this festival. Will you show pictures in your lecture? Uh, the plan is that it will be... A, I'll have a, a PowerPoint presentation, so yes, there should be pictures. I'm not sure... I mean, I've been informed that that facility will be there. There'll be a projector that I can hook my laptop up to uh, but we'll see when we get there you know it's a festival in the countryside I, but I'm you know I've spoken in lots of different places and you know in lots of different conditions so I'm I'm ready for anything that happens <laughs> I think this is some kind of medieval theme thing so don't be surprised yeah. if the audience looks like they're taken out of the Lord of the Rings or something yeah <laughs> it will be a blast I'm sure I'm looking forward to it yes well people we've been talking today with the forbidden archaeologist Michael Cremo and Michael it was a delight. Thank you very much for coming on. Great to be with you and all your listeners. And we hope we'll get you back for a more philosophical conversation next time. Okay, that would be great. Yes. So good luck with your lecture. Thank you. So that's our program for today. If you're curious about the exciting evidence for mankind's extreme age and want to see for yourself, plus the added benefit of being in untouched, beautiful nature, drop by his lecture on Friday the 31st this month of July 2015. You will find a link to the festival under both part one and two of today's forum on YouTube. So if you're listening to this as our website podcast, go to our YouTube channel for this detail or simply check Michael's own website where there's also links to the event. We will have Michael Cremo back in the future as a part of our forthcoming series on the crisis of science, so remember to check that out. You know, every month there's about 300 new webcasts popping up, but just as many quitting too. 
Fortunately, we at Borealis are not into this for the money, but are happy to remain idealistic amateurs. However, in the long run, we cannot have expenses even if we do not profit, so if you enjoyed the forum, thank those few listeners who's already donated, because that has facilitated you listening to this, and hopefully a few more will chip in, so our production costs get down to zero. As a symbolic appreciation, we will give away a book by one of our guests to one of our sponsors, which will be drawn before the end of the year. To learn more, enter our sponsor page, where all our programs are uploaded as podcasts prior to YouTube release. That's it for now. I thank you for dropping by and hope you enjoyed. Until our paths cross again, from the team and your host, I'll be seeing you. number one.